So this final contribution today is entitled Baptist Identity, Both Evangelical and Liberal. In 1990, in the introduction to his book, The Nonconformists, the historian James Munson made the following statement. The decline of English nonconformity as a major part of English culture in the 20th century may well be seen as being as profound a change in English history as the suppression of the monasteries under Henry VIII. Like the monasteries, some of its ruins still bear testimony to its lost influence. The chapels turned into bicycle shops and off-licenses. The great suburban churches in which a handful of the faithful gather, where once thousands sat entranced under great preachers. However, nonconformity's influence has so permeated English life in the 20th century that the nonconformist legacy has affected millions who have never set foot inside a chapel. Now, I suspect that some here today are scarcely aware that as Baptist Christians, we belong to a very particular and honorable tradition within the Christian church. We live, we are told, in an age when we are post-denominational, and this goes along with a number of other posts, post-industrial, post-feminist, post-charismatic, post-modern, post-Christendom, post-conservative, post-liberal, post-Brexit. After a while, of course, you become a bit post-off with it all. (laughs) Of course, we are post in many things. Over the decades, there have been considerable discussions about Baptist identity in a post-denominational age. I have never quite shed the the suspicion that only when a movement has lost its momentum does it begin to obsess about who and what it is. But at their best, such discussions could be a joyful rediscovery of who we think we are and what we have to offer in the contemporary world. What are we called to be now and in the future? I make today a simple claim that could guide us. It embraces both living experience of Jesus the Christ and significant ideas that shape how we live out our discipleship. The claim is that our Baptist, free church identity should consist in the mutual coexistence and mutual interpenetration of both the evangelical and the liberal. That is, of firm belief in the gospel of Jesus Christ and of gospel freedom, the freedom that is in Christ. And the text appropriate to this is Galatians chapter 5, verse 1. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Now, I do not mean that we are in a denomination that has two wings, a right wing and a left wing, or an evangelical wing and a liberal wing. At a Baptist assembly, I did once hear the claim being made 
and I have disagreed with it ever since, as I have indeed with some other things I have heard at Baptist assemblies. <laughs> as a bird has two wings in order to fly, we are told, so a denomination needs two wings, one on the left and one on the right. Maybe. But to me, this sounds like a recipe for flying round in circles. Notice rather the words I have used, the coexistence and mutual interpenetration of the evangelical and the liberal emphases, such that they belong together and find themselves in mutual dependence and coherence, woven together into a distinctive and beneficial pattern. And when I use the word liberal, I do not mean adherence to the kind of liberal Protestantism that has sometimes sought to overthrow and undermine the tenets of orthodox Christian belief. Quite to the contrary. I use it rather to indicate a generosity of spirit and of mind. Liberal in the sense of willing to give to others. I use it to cultivate an attitude of open-mindedness and free inquiry, while bearing in mind the words of Leslie Newbegin, it's good to have an open mind, but not open at both ends at the same time. (laughs) Above all, I use it to emphasize the value and reality of freedom in Jesus Christ and the implications of such freedom for our personal life our church commitments, and our social existence. So the first half of the claim is this. We are an evangelical people. We believe in the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, back in the 17th century, there were two streams of Baptist life, the general Baptists and the particular Baptists. They shared much, but had their significant differences. The generals believed Christ had died for all, and therefore all might be saved. The particulars believed that Christ died for the elect chosen by God from before the foundation of the world. With the passage of time, they began to sink their differences and grow together. Toward the end of the 19th century, they did this by defining themselves not as Arminian or Calvinist, but as evangelical. Their defining documents began to make reference to those sentiments normally described as evangelical. This meant, firstly, they were not Catholics, but Protestants. Secondly, they were not Unitarians, but celebrated belief in one God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Baptists, then, are Protestant believers whose experience of faith has been informed, indeed turbocharged, by the evangelical revivals of the 18th century. They hold firmly to those watchwords of the Reformation that we recall as Christ alone, grace alone, faith alone, and Scripture alone. Evangelical faith, therefore, has intellectual force and conviction. And it is also experiential. 
It embraces a realized communion with God by grace through faith in Christ as witnessed to by the Holy Scriptures. Being convinced about these things, convinced not in theory alone but in experience, we become able to convince others also. To this we testify when we are baptized. Baptism is the sign that we have believed for ourselves, that we have entered through the narrow gate of conversion and turned our lives over to God through Jesus Christ. It is the sign not of a borrowed faith or a faith imposed upon us from outside, but of one we have chosen for ourselves because God has first of all come to us and set us free. Baptist free church identity, I am claiming, should consist in the mutual coexistence and mutual interpenetration of both the evangelical and the liberal principles of firm belief in the gospel of Jesus Christ and of gospel freedom, the freedom that is in Christ. To return to our guiding text, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. And so attention turns to that second emphasis that interpenetrates and coexists with the evangelical, the liberal dimension. The gospel is a gospel of liberation and freedom. Christ has set us free. Martin Luther proclaimed that Christ has liberated us from five tyrants that have held us captive, sin, guilt, death, hell, and the devil. And there are other tyrants too. Christ has overcome them in his incarnation, life, death, resurrection, and heavenly reign. But it is not only from these powers that Christ has liberated us, but for a new kind of life, a restored life, in which, healed from the past, we are able to become before God what God intends us to be. To serve Christ is perfect freedom. Restoration to a responsible, discerning, wise quality of life in which we bring light to the world. It is indeed for freedom that Christ has set us free. Yet these words from Paul are followed by a clear warning. Do not sit, submit again to a yoke of slavery. The first Baptists took this seriously, and for them it took a particular shape. That shape was the medieval system of the Roman Catholic Church, and what the first Baptists regarded as its derivative, the then Church of England. I'm rather happy that the bishop has left at this point although he'd agree as a historian. The reformer's doctrine of the liberty of conscience was a protest against the exclusive right claimed by the Roman Catholic Church to determine how God is to be worshipped, a right that was backed by the coercive and persecutory power of the state. The church claimed the rights of monopoly to be the only legitimate religious power in the territories in which it held sway. It also had the nature of a monarchy, 
of sole rule, with the Pope being at the apex of a priestly hierarchy in which sacred power was mediated through powerful bishops and priests to the people. It was able to act in concert with the temporal power for the mutual advantage of both, claiming that disobedience to the temporal power also constituted a form of blasphemy since it was to resist the powers that the church had validated and confirmed. Only against this totalitarian backdrop are we truly able to understand the nature of the freedom to which those early Baptists laid claim. The response of Baptists and other Protestants to such totalitarian religious claims has been, in the words of the Westminster Confession, that God alone is Lord of the conscience and has left it free from the doctrines and commandments of men which are in anything contrary to his word or beside it in matters of faith and worship. Echoing the uh, alleged words of Martin Luther a century before, their confession was, my conscience is captive to the word of God, here I stand, I can do no other. Their insistence was that when it came to choosing between obedience to the call of God and obedience to the state or to a monopolistic religious power, there was no contest. They would obey God and take the consequences. And once the insight was gained by Luther that one cannot coerce the conscience in the worship and service of God, it was given a much broader interpretation by the radical reformers, the Anabaptists, Mennonites, Baptists, and Quakers. As some Quakers stated, God has assumed to himself the power and dominion of the conscience. Therefore, it is not lawful for any whatsoever by nature of any authority or principality they bear in the government of the world to force the conscience of others. This is a breaking away from any tyrannical view of church or state. The freedom of the local congregation is a further expression both of the freedom of conscience and of the liberal emphasis that is a constituent part of Baptist identity. Just as individuals are free to worship God according to conscience, without compulsion from external powers, and without fear of sanction for so doing, so it is that churches gathered around Christ and his word are free to interpret and apply that word for themselves. But in doing so, and this is a hugely important point, they act in accordance with the evangelical emphases of the priority of Christ, Scripture, grace, and faith. Although free from external compulsion, they are not free from the internal constraint of the truth as it is in Jesus, because it is precisely from that truth that they derive their freedom in the first place. To say it again, in Baptist identity, the evangelical and the liberal interpenetrate and co-inhere. They belong together and are two sides of one coin. It is just here that a truly Christian understanding of freedom is to be distinguished from secular notions. 
For the Christian, freedom is not simply the liberty to be what I want to be in defiance of others. It is not the freedom to create my own laws and morality, to be unencumbered by moral demands and obligations. Rather, it is the freedom to lose my soul in order to find it, to have the laws of God written on the heart, and to do what is right, not through compulsion, but because I wish so to live and so to please God. In other words, it is a freedom to be a creature of God, living for the purpose for which I have been created. Yet there are clearly implications of this Christian and Baptist understanding for the secular realm. To assert the freedom of conscience as being bound to God before it is to any earthly power, we have already implied that those powers, both religious and secular, should stay within their limits, that it is not part of their business to trespass on the most intimate and personal of all dimensions. They do not mediate between God and humankind. Only Christ does that. And his prerogatives, what are sometimes called the crown rights of the Redeemer, should not be usurped. Neither is it their calling to compel conformity of belief or practice in matters spiritual and religious, but rather to maintain their proper limits, to preserve the freedom of citizens to search for God and to make their own choices, to live out that life in free communities of faith within the boundaries of a properly ordered society. And part of that ordering of society is the preservation of the religious liberty of all its citizens, compelled or compulsory religion is not true religion. True religion requires the willing and convinced participation of its followers. And two things follow from this. The first is that the freedom to be a Christian implies the freedom not to be a Christian. That is to follow some other pathway or no pathway at all. Only if this possibility exists can we be assured that those who choose to be Christians do so not out of fear of penalty or discrimination, but out of authentic faith. Secondly, the Christian requirement to love our neighbors as ourselves <coughs> requires us not to claim privileged rights over against others, but rather to accord to them the same rights we claim for ourselves, the rights of freedom of belief, of worship, and of practice. Perhaps this is the point at which the liberal dimension that belongs to Baptist identity comes most clearly into focus. The consistent Baptist position has been that to safeguard its own freedom, to maintain the integrity of truth, the civic freedom we desire for ourselves should be granted also to others, even when we believe them to be in error. So to recapitulate, Baptist free church identity consists in the mutual coexistence and mutual interpenetration of both the evangelical and the liberal, of firm belief in the gospel of Jesus Christ and of gospel freedom, the freedom that is in Christ. This is an identity to be celebrated and shared. It was 400 years ago 
that in 1616, the Baptist pioneer Thomas Helwes published his great gospel-based plea for religious freedom, the mystery of iniquity, and paid the price for it with his life. The identity he represents is worth living for.